Hear the word of our God. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of Christ and renew us even today, both through this, the reading but also through the proclamation of your word. Grant us your work within to live for you and to love you as we ought. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sure, I'm not the only one in this room for whom Titus 3, 4 through 7 is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Hopefully I'm the only one in this room who has taken 30 something just south of 40 years to to notice the context of those wonderful verses. Because I, I don't think until about a month ago I had really noticed the context for those amazing gospel verses, verses 4 through seven. Paul is doing something very specific with this passage. It's not that he's giving us a, a systematic theology of salvation. It's a useful text when we're trying to think through what goes on in our salvation, and it's not irrelevant, but that's not his main goal and objective as we look at the context. Uh, He is showing us how to accomplish something else in our lives. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul continues to put before us what it looks like to be a a Christian or a kingdom citizen, countercultural. How does this look like in being zealous for good works in a pagan culture? And uh, he's already in chapter 2 been working on that. 
Actually, he's been doing it in this whole letter. Chapter 1. What does it look like for a Christian or a, a kingdom cultural elder? What, what should that person look like? Chapter 2. What should older people look like? Chapter 2. What should younger people look like? Chapter 2. Also, what should slaves or servants, whichever word, whichever category of people he's talking, what, what should they look like? And now he takes all of us and confronts us with what should a kingdom citizen look like in terms of being a pilgrim in a pagan land. He wants us to see in verse 1 how the Christian should engage with government. And in verse 2, how the Christian should interact with fellow citizens in that uh, under that government. Uh, he packs a lot into just these two very short verses. He uses in verse 1 uh, the two very general statements, subject to rulers and authorities. And, and it's been noted that Paul doesn't give specific rulers or authorities listed there. There, there are a lot of words he could have used. Be subject to Caesar. Or be subject to uh, the Cretan governor. I don't know if they had a Cretan governor, but everyone has a governor, right? Cretan whatever. He, he doesn't use specific words. He uses the most general words he could for people who are in charge of a country or a nation or a group. In other words, he's saying if they have legal or right authority over you, you are to engage with them in this way. In what way? Well, he uses two statements. Be subject to them and obey. Now, subject could be the idea of, of uh, submitting yourself under them. Uh, in the New Testament, those two words sometimes uh, can be almost parallel, submit or subject yourself. It's similar idea. Uh, in the ancient world, think of what would a subject do when they came before an authority. They would, they would bend the knee, right? There's a subjecting. We don't use the word that way. Uh, we, maybe we don't use the word at all. Not a very American concept to subject yourself to someone else. Uh, but, that, but that's the kind of the idea, and so it's similar to the idea of submitting before this authority. But I think maybe Paul's meaning even a little bit of a different nuance, possibly, because subject could have the idea of being a good subject. And what, what does distinguish a good subject? The good subject doesn't just maybe keep the law. The good subject is reverent and honoring. And I think maybe that's what Paul is getting at here, because as he's talking here, I think he's drawing us to the two things that in the fifth commandment we're told to be to those in authority over us. Remember when we're given the fifth commandment in the Old Testament, which is? I, th I, heard, I heard mother somewhere, so someone got it right. Uh, honor your father and your mother, right? So it's given twice. It's given in Exodus and it's given in Deuteronomy. And in one of those places, we're told, obey your father and your mother. But in the other one, we're told, honor your father and your mother. 
And it's saying the same thing, but it's nuancing what obedience should look like. It's not biblical obedience ever, regardless of parents, whomever. It's not biblical obedience if you're grumbling the whole time. Fine, I'll take out the trash. But let's not really obeying, even if the trash ends up outside. Because biblically, you're not fulfilling the law. You are to reverence the authority. Honor. Uh, I remember uh, being very excited when uh, I heard our brother David uh, mentioning a a song that, or a, a little line or something that I grew up with, and I hadn't heard anyone reference in years. To delay is to disobey. I think it must have been a song, you know, written in the 50s or something. And I, I got it from my parents. And David apparently taught it when he was at the Christian school. And to delay is to disobey. The, the idea being honor is part of obedience. If you're delaying, you're not honoring the authority God's put over you. We, I, I think it's easier for, especially as adults, for us to say this about towards parents, uh, that honor as well as obedience is important. Unless we still don't want to honor our parents, which is possible. But, uh, but I, I think deep down we know the two things need to go together. I think it's harder for us when we start applying things like this to the government. Uh, we are going to come back to verses 1 and 2 in, uh, in a couple of weeks in the evening. Because we're coming up on the fifth commandment. And so we're going to spend a week on parents. And then we're going to spend a week on Romans 13 and Titus 3, 1 and 2. So I won't say a lot more about the first two verses here today, although I do just want you to notice that it goes above and beyond submission and obedience. Because then when it gets into how we treat our fellow citizen in verse 2, really before you even get to verse 2, we're to submit, we're to obey, And we're to be ready for every good work. The government doesn't call on you to do every good work. The government usually doesn't really guard whether you're speaking evil of other people within certain limits. The government doesn't call on you to have a gentle or humble attitude towards others. But Titus 3, 1 and 2 does. So Paul is calling on the countercultural, the Christian, the kingdom cultural Christian to go above and beyond mere obedience. And that's not an easy thing to do, which is why we're going to come back and spend another week thinking about this a bit more down the road. But this is a very powerful text, isn't it? In fact, I I think where it gets most powerful is the last three comments in verse 2. I I think maybe we could say, maybe we could say, well, I I obey and I, I, I do these things. But when it's defined how we go about our interaction with culture and with government, to be peaceable, gentle, and humble. And that's where it gets hard, isn't it? 
Because that calls on us. We're back to that honor thing, aren't we? You can get away with being an okay citizen and not be those things. But to honor the King Eternal who has placed you in a, in a government, under a government, Romans 12 and 13 made that clear, right? God has placed us here. And to really demonstrate that we believe that calls on us to be peaceable, gentle, and humble to all. How in the world are we supposed to and expected to be humble engaging with this culture? How how in the world are we supposed to be gentle engaging with this government? Be, be honest. It's not an easy thing, is it? To be humble, especially the humble one, but I think the gentle and the peaceable too, how we engage with where we live here in Crete, Cretan America. Everyone's a liar. Everyone's inhuman beast. Lazy glutton. <laughs> Crete. America about the same how how do we how does God actually expect us to be humble peaceable and gentle as we engage with this culture and with this government that's the context of those wonderful statements how does God expect me to be gentle, peaceable, and humble when we have this president, governor, government, this community and its agendas? How are we to be all these things? Paul responds first that we need to remember who we once were. How are you to be humble, peaceable, and gentle with this society? Remember who we once were. And verse 3 makes it very clear. We were like them. Not better. But hang on, Paul. <laughs> wait, a, wait a sec. I, I'm better than that, Paul. Speak for yourself, Paul. Remember who's talking here. It's Paul. The Pharisee of Pharisees. If there was a legalistic, moralistic man, it was young Paul. He kept the law. He, he even makes a point out of saying, circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, which is his way of saying... Ah, even before I made the decisions, I was keeping the law. That, I hope you realize that's what he's saying when he says that. My, my parents kept the law and I've kept it since my youth. That's Paul before his conversion. And, and just because he ceased to be moralistic, legalistic when he was converted, doesn't mean he went out and 
binged and partied and committed all sorts of sin. He's a good guy. And yet he's saying all of us, by nature, are on the same playing field. We're all, by nature, these things. I think, I don't know how Crete was. The commentators wax eloquent trying to talk about little, little snippets of historical data that we have that might suggest that there wasn't a lot of respect for the government in Crete. I don't know. But, but our society, there's not a lot of honor for the government. Why? And why in the church do we not have respect and honor peaceableness, gentleness, and humility. Why are these things the case? Because it's so easy to defend a scornful or a snarky attitude, isn't it? So easy. They they make it so easy to defend this attitude of mine towards them. They certainly haven't earned my respect. What What an attitude. That's our attitude, isn't it? You have to earn honor and respect. We'll talk about that more with the fifth commandment, whether respect is only given to those who earn it, according to God. But, but it's easy to defend this attitude because we can say, have you seen the news? They're so stupid. That guy can't even pronounce Nuclear. Have you seen that guy's haircut? Have you, you know, th- this guy can't even put a coherent sentence together or what, you know, I'm sure you could, those are all just, I made all those up, right? But I'm sure you could think of something related to politicians that would be easy. They're so stupid. Paul says, we were foolish. Which is Paul's nice way of saying, yeah, you're st- you were stupid too. But that's what Paul saying. You were stupid. You think they're stupid. You were stupid. Come on, Paul. They are sinful. Look at them breaking God's law. It's, it's disgusting, isn't it? It's perverted. It makes you nauseous. You watch the news today. and it's just, oh, Look how sinful they are. Paul says, we were disobedient. Well, they're so wrong, though, about everything. We were deceived. Well, they're out for their own gain. Ah, that's where, the, that's where we're so different. They're out for their own gain. And Paul says, we were serving lusts and pleasures. Well, they're so hateful. We were full of malice and envy and hatred. See what Paul's doing there? He's hitting all of these excuses that we make. All these scornful thoughts that we have when we think of them, whoever they are. Maybe it's not even the government. Maybe it's your employer. Maybe maybe it's just other people in our society. All men, remember, he said all men or all mankind do this towards all humility towards all mankind, humankind. 
And he just targets all of these ways that we excuse our behavior towards others. And he says, but all the things that you use as excuses were true of you. At the risk of being redundant here, I really want to drive this point home. So this week, I I did a little experiment with myself. I'm going to ask you to do it now as you think about what Paul's saying. Think of your least favorite co-worker or student, depending on what stage of life you're in. You can even shut your eyes and imagine their face if you want to. Least favorite co-worker. Or the politician in the last decade that you think is the most detestable. Or the celebrity that you think is the most wicked. And then realize that what Paul is saying is that if you stood with that coworker, that politician, that celebrity before the throne of God in this moment, and all that you had to present yourself with was your own righteousness, you would not be judged differently. That's, that's what he's saying. You were just like them as far as God is concerned. Why? Well, in the New Testament, we're taught very clearly the reason that we were not any better than all of these, why we were so much like them. Because we too were in rebellion against God, loving ourselves and living for sin. We were not better than they. There's nothing more stupid than being in rebellion against God. The almighty, immortal, invisible, everywhere present, all wise, holy God. There's nothing dumber than being a sinner. And just like them, we were just loving it. We are not better than they. We were just like them. But Paul doesn't stop with that. That should humble us, right? But where do our hearts go from there? Well, we were like them, Paul. But then we saw the light. And I decided I was going to be smarter than that. I decided I was going to turn my life around. I decided, Paul, that I was going to be a good person. They haven't decided that. I'm different than them, Paul. Is is that what Paul says? Notice that Paul says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. You were like them, and the fact that you're no longer like them isn't because of you. So why is it? Why are we different now? Because of this astonishing fact, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. And in chapter 2, at the end, as we saw last week, he emphasizes this, this salvation that God has brought that has appeared to all men. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. The Kindness and love of God has appeared in the face of Jesus Christ 
who became a man, who lived the righteous life, who was never like us or like them, but experienced all the hardships that we all experience and all the hatred that we all experience. And he went and he died that he might bring salvation. According to his mercy, he saved us, Paul says. The kindness and love of God our Savior. The Old Testament has a word for that. This is Paul in the Greek picking up on a Hebrew concept. And many of you have heard me refer to this. The, the Hebrew word is chesed. It's got a good guttural. You spit when you say it, or you're not saying it right. Chesed. But it, it's a beautiful word, despite how it sounds, and getting spit in your face if you're too close to me. It's a beautiful word. We, we actually can't quite get our minds around how to translate it in the English. And so that's why all our English translations grasp at amazing words to use. And then some of the best commentators have said, the the only way we can get at this is to just take all of your translations and cram them together. And so it's the idea in the Old Testament of the, the steadfast, merciful kindness of God towards people in covenant. That, that's the idea, that God has reached out towards people who were his enemies and said, I will covenant with you. I will make you my allies instead of my enemies. I will make you not just, not just a bare peace. We'll agree to disagree and, and live at a distance from each other. But the idea that God took his enemies and made them his children. And that's what this language here, Paul's reflecting on that in, into the Greek. The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. According to his mercy, he saved us. And this, when, when did this kindness and love start? When we'd earned it? No. Ephesians 1 verse 4. This steadfast loving kindness of God existed in the heart of God before the creation of the world. As we're going to sing in a few minutes, I I love the way James Boyce puts it. That he saw me in my lost estate. He, He looked ahead and what did he see? Goodness? No, he looked ahead and he saw me fallen, wicked, like them. And he purposed to regenerate this faithless, fallen man. That's what Paul's saying. That's who you were. Why are you different? Because the kindness and love of God has appeared in Jesus Christ for us. And what did that accomplish? The kindness of God has appeared so that through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit... This change might take place. When preaching on this, Calvin comments, we were so defiled and unclean that we can only be detestable to God. Since we are thoroughly unclean, God is bound to be our enemy. 
How could our souls be cleaned by an earthly or a perishable element? Water does not have that power. Paul describes here the washing by which we are renewed and made new creatures. That's what Paul's saying. You were like them. Why am I not like them anymore? Well, you better get humble because He made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive by the peace of the cross which you didn't earn. How can I be peaceable and gentle and humble relating to this society? God made you alive. The washing of regeneration. We we can think of what Jesus says in John 3. When you see that word regeneration, I think that I think it's the NIV that instead of regeneration puts rebirth here. And that, while that's not quite an accurate translation, it is the right point. In the Bible, rebirth, born again, and regeneration are the same thing. Regenerate means to make alive. And Jesus says in John 3 that unless one is born again, they cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. It's not that Jesus says, unless one's born again, you cannot desire the kingdom of heaven. You can't even see it. It's not even on your radar. Because you're dead. You've heard me use the the imagery before. My my friend Steve Wilford used to use the picture of going into a, a morgue. And there's this body on the slab in the morgue. And you take the best pizza in the world, fresh out of the oven. It smells amazing. Pick whatever meal is your favorite. His was pizza. And you take a slice of that fresh smelling pizza and you wave it over the nose of the corpse. And how long before the corpse reaches up and takes a bite? Never. Unless one is born again. Regenerated. Brought back to life where there is only death they cannot desire. No, they can't even smell the pizza. They can't see the kingdom of God. But he brings regeneration. The washing away of that which was there, the trespasses and sins in which we are dead, washed away, and we are made alive. And then Paul pairs that, and pairs it in a way, I'm not sure we can really dissect. Regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Because we're made alive, and that act of making us alive, the Holy Spirit renews us. Renews what about us? Renews our wills. Where are we were dead? He gives us life. In life, we are again able to choose and able not to choose. To choose good or to choose evil. When we're brought back to life by the Spirit, He renews our will so that we can say, 
this is good, that's bad, and I'm going to choose. We couldn't even do that before. So much for our pride. But rebirth and regeneration, the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills, the Spirit persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ. Embrace, what a word. To put our arms around and hold on tight for dear life. With love. To desire. To embrace Jesus Christ who is freely offered to us in the gospel. Or as Philippians 2.13 pictures it for us. When we are renewed by the Holy Spirit, we are again able to not only will or desire, but also to do His will. But again, it's because He has done this thing. And Paul keeps going. (laughs) Not by works of righteousness we have done, but because of God's kindness and love, He did this thing. He renewed us and washed us and regenerated us, gave us new birth, so that being justified by grace... We have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Being justified by grace. His grace. Justified. It's a legal courtroom statement. That the judge has declared you innocent and smashed that gavel down. There's no going back now. He's justified by the blood of the cross. He has made you in Christ. We, we said it earlier, didn't we? By the blood of the cross. By the justification we have in Christ. It is not only as if we who are sinners had never done anything wrong. It is that we who are sinners. It is as if we have always done everything right in the eyes of God. What a gospel. We have done much that's wrong. But God looks at us and sees Jesus and says, she has never done anything wrong. He has never done anything wrong. Yes, we have. But as far as the court is determinative, as far as your eternal status in heaven, you are just as righteous as Christ. Why? Because you're standing in Christ's righteousness. You are united to him by faith. Astonishing gospel. And it doesn't stop with God saying not guilty in Christ. But in Christ then we are also adopted. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul takes us that one last step also in asking, how am I supposed to be humble to them? Well, you were like them. Well, how am I supposed to be humble toward them? Well, it's not because of your works, but by his loving kindness, you are different. So if they're not different too, it's because it's because you receive special favor and special mercy. Not because you deserved it. But then Paul takes us that last step. How am I supposed to be patient towards them? Paul says, you're an heir 
according to the hope of eternal life. I was thinking about that this week. All these wonderful things that have made us different from who we were. How long does their benefit last? You're adopted in in Christ Jesus. You're a daughter or a son of God. And have the rights and privileges of the sons of God. To inherit with Christ all that Christ inherits. And he inherits all things. And on the last day we will be with him. How long do we get that benefit? Until the next presidential election? As long as we have a righteous government. No, that's... That one, that one's ridiculous. Okay. As long as we have freedom of religion. But if, if we lose freedom of religion, do, do we lose the inheritance? See what Paul's doing here? How am I supposed to be peaceable in this government? How am I supposed to be gentle and humble towards this society? He says, this isn't it, people. You have an inheritance laid up in heaven for you with Christ, which will never fade away, imperishable in the heavens. You are an heir according to the hope of eternal life. (laughs) That should affect how you relate to them. Them. It should, shouldn't it? That's Paul's whole point. That's what Paul, with this glorious gospel statement that we all love so much, the whole reason he wrote it down here by inspiration was to make a point about how we relate to them. And he's saying you can do it. Not in and of yourself. Not because of yourself. But you can do it. Because of what he has done. And because what is waiting for you. This isn't it for you. Your hope is above and beyond them. God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. And so, beloved, because of these mercies of God in Christ applied to you by the Holy Spirit, it is my calling with Titus to remind you, indeed, perhaps to rebuke or exhort you with all authority, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. This is a faithful saying. And these things, dear friends, I want you to constantly affirm that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain zealous good works because these things are profitable not only to you, but to all humanity. Let's